0: Good again everyone, I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo and I'm a professor of Communication Studies and you're listening to Now We're Talking. This is a podcast about communication skills and like I said the last couple of episodes I'm being joined by some of my students this semester who have uh, thankfully helped uh, come on to help explain some concepts first in interpersonal communication. So today I've got with me one of my students, her name is Negin and she's going to be helping me talk about uh, conflict and how to de-escalate conflict in interpersonal situations. So, hi, Nagin.
1: Hi, Rob. So, in relationships, conflict is inescapable, but it's not necessarily always detrimental. If it's done properly, it can be a starting point for productive and well-meaning change and growth, because it directly challenges our perspectives, for better or for worse. So, for example, um, for better, recently a close friend of mine told me that he views me as a free spirit, and whereas I normally consider myself a ball of nerves and uptight, and I immediately rejected his thought, Uh, He provides specific examples as to why he thinks I'm a free spirit, and I've tried to channel that and embrace my inner free spirit, and now I actually view myself as such in some ways. However, for this to happen, it must be functional conflict, not dysfunctional conflict. Conflicts can also clarify needs and expectations, desires, problems, and solutions, but if they're done properly. So now talk about some signs of dysfunctional conflict and practices that we can use to avoid them. So what's a dysfunctional conflict? Well, first... If the conflict fails to make a distinction between the person and the issue at hand, for example, if you tell your partner they didn't do the dishes and it turns into you're so lazy and messy and it becomes both the character and not the situation at hand, that's a sign of insecurity and uncertainty and a sign of dysfunctional conflict. Second, communicative narcissism. What this means is if one partner believes they have the only solution to the problem, they'll go into an attack mode um, and treat themselves as special or upper to the other person, that treats the other as lesser. And third, a disproportionate relationship of emotional investment. So getting really, really angry or really, really upset at seemingly small things, like the dishes, for example, might show that this was a dysfunctional conflict.
0: So the, the dysfunctional conflict, some people can make the mistake of assuming all conflict is bad and that's often because the only kinds of conflict they've experienced is a dysfunctional conflict. And it's not the case, for starters, but uh, we have to be careful to, to think about the ways in which conflict can be productive when it doesn't contain those, those features. And if you find yourself in a lot of arguments or conflicts and you think it's always bad, it's likely always bad because those conflicts have one of those characteristics and not some of the characteristics of good or functional conflict.
1: And so moving forward, how do we have functional conflict? Well, first, when you enter in a conflict, make sure you have the other's best interests in mind. So no matter what the conflict is about, keep an end goal in your mind of making sure that when the conflict is over, the other person leaves feeling secure, calm, and comfortable. So for example, with the dishes, make sure that when you enter that conflict, Your goal isn't to aggravate them and make them angry at you, your goal is to make sure that they leave that conflict feeling comfortable and calm and maybe even wanting to do the dishes next time. Second, know your biases and admit them. So for example, you could say, I always, and probably incorrectly, assume that when you don't do the dishes, you mean this, and that's because my mom always said that growing up. I'm sorry, I shouldn't assume. What is your intention? Third, be clear about facts versus feelings. So if you're, let's say you say, I'm really upset because you told me that we would go on a date tonight, but now you're bailing. You're talking about your feelings and you're clarifying it's about your feelings. Versus on the other hand, see, if you look at this text, Joel said to pick him up at six, not 6.30. That makes a conflict with the fact, not how you feel about it.
0: So this is good. This is very, very specific. So I, I want to pay attention to how detailed we're being about communication patterns right now. Uh, for, so being clear about facts or feelings is, uh, is an indication that we have to phrase the things that we're saying with a great deal of care and make a careful distinction Um, and those distinctions can actually influence the the positive or negative outcome of a particular conflict. So I, I just want to point out the fact that we're being really specific here so phrasing is incredibly important in any given conflict and the level of detail with which you pay attention to phrasing can influence whether or not someone takes offense to some position or someone realizes that you have their best interests in mind or that you're being clear about facts or feelings. And I'm saying this because I think one of the most problem, one of the biggest problems with conflict is that it's emotional and as soon as things get emotionally charged we get careless with things like phrasing, we get careless with how we choose to use our words. And it's at those moments when we have to put the most amount of care into those sorts of choices. And it's at those moments where we run the risk of getting most confused or or conflating facts and feelings or getting most confused about what it is we're really upset about. So here we're talking about communication practices at the level of the phrasing, at the level of the way we phrase things.
1: Next, it's not about winning. So when you go into an argument, your goal isn't to show them that you're more dominant and that you have the right answer and that your point is right. Because usually if that ends up happening, you don't end up winning, it ends up being an emotional mess. For example, I have a friend that always looks to win a relationship. She wants to prove the other person wrong. See, I was right, we should have done this. But usually when she enters a really big conflict, most of relationships end after that conflict, and she doesn't end up winning anything at all. Make sure you focus on the other person not being defensive. So if the person, if let's say the dishes example... If your partner didn't do the dishes, ask them why they didn't do dishes. Don't just get defensive and complain about how you had such a long day and they're not considering you and it's all about them, but ask why they didn't do them and what maybe else would happen in their day. Uh, Also, make sure you apologize. Also, a lot of people assume that apologies mean that you were wrong and they avoid apologies because they don't want to admit to being wrong, but there are many different types of apologies. For example, there's apologies that express regret, apologies that accept responsibility, apologies that make restitution, Apologies that genuinely repent and apologize for requesting forgiveness—these are not necessarily all the same apologies, um, but they definitely work towards solving the conflict and de-escalating it.
0: This reminds me: this all the like, not wanting to win, apologizing, uh, defensiveness—all three of these are are clearly um, concerns about power, actually. And the, one of the issues with conflict is that. Conflict is oftentimes a kind of wrestling between two opposing forces for power, for control. And if we're trying to win, we're trying to assert our authority over someone, and we're starting to assert ourselves as more right than someone else. If we refuse to apologize, it's often because of a kind of insecurity or defensiveness about the power or the control that we have. If we automatically or routinely get defensive in these situations, it's often because we feel powerless or without authority. So conflict that makes itself about power often results in these kinds of negative characteristics. If you can avoid the conflict being about power, sometimes you can avoid being defensive or, or you can engage in genuine apology. Um, so that could be productive and, and helpful way to perceive things. Communication, if we remember the very, very first episode of this podcast, it's about effects, not about transmission. And I also said it's about relationality or building relationships. And this is a good illustration of the fact that if you make communication about power or authority, then you're missing the relational component and you're missing the kinds of effects that search for power can have on the other person.
1: And lastly, I'm gonna use this next point to move into how we fix dysfunctional conflict and how we move towards functional conflict. There's a couple of things here. So using I statements, for example, if the dishes example, you could say, I'm upset because I feel like you didn't do the dishes and rather than saying you don't care about me, you didn't do the dishes because you're showing that I don't matter and my day does not matter. Body language, body language is really important and body language can be shown in a variety of ways. For example, one thing you can do to work towards positive body language is If you're in a disagreement and it's escalating and one person, they're both standing up, you can choose to sit down. That de-escalates the conflict. If you're both already sitting down, you can choose to lean back. That de-escalates the conflict even further. The physical stance of the person really actually affects the conflict. Tone and pitch. If you find that the other person's tone and pitch is increasing and rising, they're getting louder and more aggravated, make mental note to yourself and actually make yourself one degree more quiet and soften your voice and... Hopefully, the other person will do the same, and you'll keep softening your voice and going quieter until you reach another functional level of communication, you're not yelling at each other.
0: Here again, we're in the, in the details of, of the really specific details of phrasing and, and body language and tone. Uh, in the phrasing, I statements and not you statements are so hard to come by when you're feeling emotionally charged. You want to attack the other person, so you get, you enter into making you statements, and I statements can prevent that. And then tone and body language, it's so interesting if you pay attention to the level of detail that we've been talking about here and on other episodes of this podcast. If your tone gets slightly softer or if your body language gets slightly less hostile, that can have enormous influence over the course of the of conflict. So it really requires you to pay attention at this level of, of detail if you're going to have a functional conflict.
1: And as Rob was just mentioning... The natural urge to attack when you're in a conflict, another way you can work around this, is counting to five before responding to anything in the argument. This not only allows for silence so both parties get to think, but it keeps you from immediately and rashly saying something that you don't necessarily mean. It gives you a chance to actually consider what you're about to say and the effect you're going to have on the other person. After a conflict, you can ask for a hug if appropriate, if it's like a sniffing other, or a friend, or a parent. Um, The physical touch will de-escalate the conflict and hopefully come to a resolution in an emotional level, even if the conflict itself is over. Also, as I mentioned earlier, apologies are important. So you should aim to apologize in some of the arguments, even if your apology isn't solving the root of the problem. For example, you can say, I'm sorry if this is a bad time, but would you be okay talking about X? Or, I'm sorry, I should have worded that better. What I really meant to say is this. And by apologizing for little small things throughout your argument versus the overall argument as a whole, it keeps the other person from feeling like you're attacking them and you're trying to win this argument because you're showing that you're going to give some space to them and hopefully they'll give some space back to you and you create an environment of collaboration versus attacking. And after each argument, reflect. So either on your own or with the other person, but especially on your own, you can actually take a journal and write down what you learned. How can you prove for next time? So ask yourself, if I could relive this conflict what would I do differently? And after each conflict, write that down and then keep adding to the list and review it on a regular basis so you know for future conflicts what your natural tendency is to do. So if your natural tendency is to raise your voice and get angry, then you'll know that I need to make sure I keep my voice so- soft and calm and quiet.
0: So this is, uh, it reminds me too, and um, uh, so some of what you're describing are general practices for effective uh effective or functional conflict. I'm also reminded that in any interpersonal relationship there can be idiosyncratic or unique things between couples. So you mentioned the hug, Um, that's one instance or one example of uh, what's called sometimes a repair attempt. So a repair attempt is any kind of communication practice that one partner makes to another partner that attempts to bridge the kinds of damage done by the conflict. So conflict is always inherently stressful and always inherently difficult. And when that difficulty is present for any relationship to be successful, there needs to be repair, there needs to be something after it to make everyone feel a little bit better. So hugging is one of those things, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. And if you're in a relationship yourself, or even if you have good friends or that you fight with sometimes, you should be aware of the fact that all relationships include their own idiosyncratic repair attempts, their own kinds of sets of practices of of repair. And it's a good idea to a good partner, at least, or someone good or skilled at interpersonal communication is self-conscious or aware of the repair attempts they use with their partner and knows when they're in a conflict when the appropriate time to return to those or to to turn to those repair attempts and to use them, essentially, to deal with what's going on. Um, I'm reminded also of some scholarship that suggests that as soon as those repair attempts that you use habitually in, uh, in a relationship, so let's say you're used to fighting with your significant other, and but you hug to make up routinely, and then one day you hug each other to try and make up, but it feels forced, and it doesn't actually repair any damage, it doesn't undo or doesn't overcome some of the pain or some of the stress caused by the conflict, that's a sign that the relationship's on the verge of total failure, that the, a breakup is is imminent. So you should be self-conscious or aware of or reflect on what your repair attempts are, even if they're idiosyncratic repair attempts, and be able to use them when you need to use them in the course of a conflict.
1: And that actually reminds me, Rob, of a repair attempt for a specific example with one of my ex-boyfriends. And that was we had this running joke of a score that we kept. Um, and the prize never eventually even got to was cheesecake but it was a plus one so after an argument whether it was just a conversation and one proved the other person wrong and it was funny and we got to a point where we would accept being proven wrong and it became like a plus one so we got after an argument we would both laugh and whoever in our minds had the right point where there was a debate about something we would just say plus one and that was our way of saying like it's over it's fine we're fine and we'd laugh and move on to the next topic and wouldn't hold any hostility because we had a chance to laugh about it
0: Yeah, good. I mean, notice how that ties in with positive physiological affective states as the result of a communication practice. Also notice how detailed you have to be. And oftentimes in interpersonal communication, you have to get that detailed. But how detailed you have to be in terms of the actual phrasing. So it was an actual specific phrase that did the repair work. And that can't be kind of overlooked, I think, uh, because we need that level of detail and that attention to detail, in order to make the conflict functional. Um, so the, yes, the the last part of a functional conflict then is the kind of the ability to repair it through some communicative means after.
1: So uh, just to conclude this, um, conflict is inescapable. We know that, and we can admit that. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. And conflict is a place that we can start to grow and learn more about ourselves and more about other people, how to treat them, how they want to be treated. But for that to happen, we need to avoid certain things and do certain things. So we need to definitely avoid feeling like we own the other person or own the situation. Rather than that, it's us keeping the other person in mind throughout the argument and knowing like what effect we have on them. It's not about winning. It's not about uh, being right, but catering your not only your body, but the words you say, your tone, and your pitch to them. Uh, and there's certain practices that we can do to improve this, and most of them might be in the argument, but there's lots we can do after an argument, like reflecting upon how the argument went to better improve our communication skills in conflict.
0: Great. Thanks, Nadine. I appreciate it. And I think we have learned something today about how to de-escalate conflict in interpersonal relationships. And we'll be back next week with another student and another episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening.